The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the first book of Kings, chapter 18, verses 41 to 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the Mount of, Top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God. You provide for our every need. You feed our bodies and our souls. Yet we hunger to know and love you more and more. Nourish us with your word today. Through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christopher. Good morning, everybody. And again, as, uh, as Nate said, uh, fathers among us, happy Father's Day. Speaking of fathers... Uh, you may uh, be familiar with some of the things that Jesus said around uh, the Lord's Prayer where he taught his people how to pray. And he said, what loving father would give to their kid a scorpion or a stone if they asked for bread or for an egg? Uh, when's the last time your kid asked you for an egg? Um, but one of the things that he says is how much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him. So uh, this was contract, uh, uh, contradicted by uh, something that, that, that sort of jarred me. I was kind of scrolling through Twitter as one does sometimes. Um, and somebody said, nothing fails like prayer. Nothing fails like prayer. Obviously, this person had experienced some disappointment, maybe something similar uh, to the psalmist when the psalmist cried out in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Uh, or even Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so on the one hand, we have this, this extremely positive perspective on prayer from the Scripture, and then we have uh, these gut-wrenching experiences of what seems or feels like abandonment through the experience of prayer, even from Jesus himself. And so what are we to do with it? There are others who are, are more optimistic. The ancient uh, preacher Chrysostom said this, the potency or the power of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has expelled demons. It has broken the chains of death. Prayer has assuaged diseases. It has rescued cities from destruction. It has stopped the sun in its course. 
It has arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. So very prayer positive statement right there. And then James chapter 5, which refers to the scripture that Christopher just read to us. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, which brings us to this text, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So what are we supposed to think about prayer, about this communion that God invites his people into with himself? Um, to answer that question, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do three uh, points today. What is prayer? Who will be heard? And on what basis? To kind of get to the bottom of the meaning of prayer and maybe what we're supposed to think about it, what we should feel about it. What is prayer? Well, prayer, at its essence, is communion with God. To know Him as our Father and to respond to Him accordingly as his children. To know him as our father and to respond to him accordingly as his children. So, so when Jesus teaches prayer, you can find this in Luke chapter 11 and also in Matthew's gospel, he says to start your prayer with these words, our father, our father who art in heaven. This is how God wants to be known primarily. This is how God wants to be experienced primarily by his children, as our Father. As our Father, his priority is to give us assurance and reassurance that we belong to him. You know, I love the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, question one, which we sometimes recite here in our liturgy. What is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about those comforts that he gives. But th this all relates to having God as our Father, this belonging. You know, the very fact that Elijah goes back to God seven times with the same request seven times in this text, uh, with no hint of feeling like he's becoming a nuisance, speaks to this relationship, speaks to this access that a father gives to his children. I mean, I remember when our girls were growing up, some nights when, when they were restless, when they had a hard time sleeping, maybe they were a little bit sick or whatever, or they were scared of something, we rem I remember them coming into our room in the middle of the night 127 times in a night, it felt like, just over and over and over again. Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad, over and 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 over again. We never tired of them being our children, even though we did tire of them coming in sometimes. We never tired of them being our kids. We were always ready, even though we were exhausted, to comfort them, to remind them that they're not alone in whatever it was that they were distressed about. God is like that. The only difference is that God doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep, and he, he doesn't wake up at 4 a.m. 
feeling like, oh, here you are again, like, like maybe some of us frail, frail parents can. You know, the pattern that is, is demonstrated here and in so many other places in the Scriptures is to come to God boldly, to come to Him repeatedly, to come to Him expectantly. And so that raises the question, why? Why does Elijah have to go to God seven times? Can't he just go once? And, and why would Elijah have any optimism at all after the last several years of his life? Because he's the prophet of Israel, and King Ahab has widely uh, called him, Elijah, the troubler of Israel. And Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, is known for her cruelty, especially to the prophets of the Lord, of Yahweh. And on top of that, Elijah was, was somewhat alone as a prophet of Yahweh in Israel. You remember last week, he was one, and the prophets of Baal were 450, Baal being the false god. And so why all this optimism? I mean, C.S. Lewis seems to make more sense in a grief observed as he processes the thought of prayer in light of the fact that his wife had just died of cancer. And he says, when we're happy and we turn to God with gratitude and praise, it feels like we're being welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. And after that, silence. The conundrum of prayer is this. Tom Petty put it best. You take it on faith, you take it to the heart, but the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting. Elijah is portrayed here as waiting. Isaiah waited his whole life without an answer during his lifetime. Isaiah's answers came after he died, right? But it was Isaiah who said, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles and run and not grow weary and so on. There's this waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And as he waits, though, look at, look at what Elijah does. He bows with his face between his knees. There's a body language here that communicates something. Elijah's body language communicates surrender, communicates, Lord, I am placing no conditions on my worship. Surrender, no conditions, and trust. Trusting God with the outcomes. It, when, I, when, I, when I saw this, you know, posture of surrender and was just sort of contemplating it this week, my mind went back to Daniel chapter 3 where there are these three men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar who was a lot like Ahab and Jezebel, tyrannical. And Nebuchadnezzar told everybody, I've built a statue in my own honor and you have to bow to it and if you don't bow to it and worship it, then I will throw you into a fiery furnace. And so there's this confrontation between King Nebuchadnezzar and three, these three worshipers of, 
of, of the Lord, and they say, we're not going to bow to your statue, O king, with all due respect. We're not going to do it. We worship the Lord and we worship him alone. And, and, and if you throw us in the furnace, our God will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we will worship him alone and we will not bow to any man. Even if he doesn't. If you're a Bible memorizer, maybe one of the first, maybe if you did Navigators, one of the first uh, verses that you were probably encouraged to, to memorize was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. That's what's going on with, with Elijah's body language. You know, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that, that says, you know, Prayer is the, is, the, is the secret and the key to, to triumphing and getting all you want and to winning. You know, I was on the, I was on the internet the other day and just scrolling around, came across this, this picture uh, that I'd seen before also of a mug. And the mug says this, you, maybe you've seen it. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. That, that, is a, that is kind of a, a slapstick um, critique of how so many of us use Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, which, which to us means, well, well, that means I can be successful in my career, I can win this game, I can make an A on this test, I can do all things. I can win through Christ who gives me strength. We ignore the context where, where the win for Paul is being able to be content in every situation, whether living in plenty or in want, as he writes those words from jail with no prospect of getting released. I can do those things. I can endure those things. I can do, endure all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, John Newton, who's Who's song? Have you ever sung a hymn like that? That last hymn we sung, like, like, did that throw you off a little bit? Do you know that that according to Kevin Twitt, who's the the campus minister of Reform University Fellowship at Belmont, part of our church, Kevin is also the leader of a of a national movement called Indelible Grace, where where basically he's resurrected a lot of long-lost hymns, put new music to them, introducing them first and foremost to college students, and a lot of them make, them, make it into churches like that song did into our church today. That is the favorite hymn among all college students. That one. You know why? Because it's an honest song. And this is Kevin's philosophy, which I love. We have to teach our people to sing honest songs and help our people teach honest songs. Otherwise, we betray their experience if we just give them happy, clappy, only joy, only triumphant kinds of songs. We train them to be dishonest about their experience. We have to give them honest songs. And honestly, prayer is anticlimactic, at least in the way that it feels sometimes. Faith feels anticlimactic sometimes. It seems like 
there should be more coming out of this than, than, than what it feels like. What is prayer? It's a grind that's full of hope. Who will be heard? It's the second question. James 5 answered this, answers this, also using Elijah as the example. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. But here's, here's the curious thing about that. That passage goes on to say, Elijah was a man just like us. In other words, he was frail, he was fallen. And we see this playing out as we read his story. We've, also, we've all already discovered that he's prone to sarcasm, he's prone to violence, and later on we will find he is prone to self-pity. He's a man, just like us. And so this, this statement, the prayers of a righteous man, when Romans chapter 3 says there's no one righteous, not even one, and the Psalms say there's no one righteous, not even one, will anybody's prayer be heard? I think the hint is in Luke, or Luke chapter 11, which I started this sermon with. Remember when I said, you know, fathers give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts? Well, specifically it says, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask. Now those who are asking God chiefly and first and foremost for the Holy Spirit are asking really for one thing. God, help me see the way you see. Help me hear the way you hear. Help me feel the way you feel. Help, help me love what you love. Help me hate what you hate. Help me want what you want. When you ask for the Holy Spirit, you're asking for the life of God to take you over and to take your bent self and to straighten you out into the likeness of the one in whose image you are made. Make me love holiness. Make me love truth and beauty. Make me love alignment to you and all that is you. What is included here is a willingness to pray against our own wants when we suspect that what God wants is in contradiction to what we want. We see this even in Jesus Christ, the perfect one. He lived perfectly, he thought and felt perfectly, he prayed perfectly. Remember his prayer at Gethsemane. Father, take this cup from me. Take this suffering away from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. Not my will, but yours be done. And what does Elijah do? James, James 5 says that Elijah doesn't only predict the drought that's been going on for three and a half years at this point. It says that he prayed for it. He prayed for a drought over the nation in which he lived. He was praying, at least in part, that he would become thirsty, that he would become parched and dried out. He's praying against his own wants. What's behind that? 
He wants more what God wants than, than, than what, what the typical human being wants. He wants holiness even more than he wants comfort, not only for himself, but for the whole people of, of God. And they've lost a sense of holiness. Yeah, I remember during the pandemic, one of our, one of our elders, one of our leaders here in the church uh, prayed a prayer during the worship service. And everyone, this was a time when everybody's lives were, were out of whack. And his prayer was this, Lord, bring relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. Bring relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. This actually, this prayer actually helped me understand on a deeper level why when Jesus is encountered by a paralytic, a man who's paralyzed from the neck down, whose friends bring him to Jesus, the first thing that Jesus tends to is this. He says, your sins are forgiven. What? I'm paralyzed. I'm, I'm immobilized. I, I'm, I'm in, in many ways disembodied from a functional body. And you're talking about my sins are forgiven? Yep. I'm talking about your sins are forgiven. You need that more than you need to walk. And of course, he, he did say, rise up, take your mountain, walk. But even if he didn't, do that, would forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God be enough? You know, there are a few things that are more spiritually dangerous. Okay, here's what I want you, us all to hear. It's really important. There are a few things that are more spiritually dangerous than a consistently happy, trouble-free, comfy life. Remember, it's at the hem of Jesus' garment. It's on the ground wrestling with God where the magic happens of, of bent people being realigned to their maker. It's always through the crucible of suffering, which is why Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our suffering, which produces hope, or character, which produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. For that's when the love of God is poured out in our hearts. Maybe that's why in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, command. Don't just suggest. Don't just try to encourage. Command those who are rich to be really generous. Lest their money become a trap for them. Lest they deny the faith and be pierced with many griefs for the love of money. Souls are at stake, he's saying. It's far better... In other words, to be in a drought with God than it is to live in a well-watered world without Him. It's one of the points of true Holy Spirit-centered and driven prayer. A sure sign of spiritual health, Garth Brooks gives it to us, plain and simple. Sometimes I thank God for what? Unanswered prayers. Even if God doesn't do what we ask him, we will not bow to anyone or anything else. Every no that God gives, and Elijah gets six no's before he gets a yes. Every no that God gives is a reminder that what God gives instead of what we ask him is what we would have asked him if we knew everything he knows, and if we were able to see everything that he sees. 
to borrow an insight from Tim Keller on that one. What every no is really, though, when we're asking for something that's according to God's will or asking something that's in alignment with the Holy Spirit, asking something that, um, that, 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 asking for something that pleases God, every no that God gives to those prayers is really just a not yet. You know, I remember when a, you know, an esteemed professor of mine a long time ago, David Calhoun, He's with the Lord now. He was diagnosed with two forms of cancer. And Brian Chapel, who was the president of the seminary at that time, told the whole community, don't pray the wimpy prayer of God if it's your will, heal him. We know it's God's will that he be healed. So pray, Lord, according to your will, would you heal him? You know, either he's going to be healed in this life, which he actually was and lived for decades after that, or in the life to come. But don't don't, don't cop out. Don't pray prayers that are less bold than what God promises. He will be healed either in this life or in the life to come. And so pray God heal him according to your will. Um, and then lastly, asking for the faith that we lack. That, that's also part of the prayer of the righteous is that we ask God for a faith that we lack. You remember the the man whose son was having seizures, the father. It was a very special Father's Day for him. In Mark chapter 9, his son was having seizures, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And in that moment, the boy is healed. Our faith doesn't have to be strong in order for God to act. Faith just has to exist. Even, even, in the, even at the size of a mustard seed, this tiny little seed, Faith just has to exist. It's, it's not the strength of our faith. It's the, it's the strength of the object of our faith, the God who is the object of our faith, that accomplishes much. Remember, the defining feeling of faith is not the feeling of strength, but dependent weakness. We wouldn't feel any need to have faith if we didn't experience weakness. So on what basis, then, do the righteous prayers get answered? It's on the basis of the one who is righteous, the one who gave the same body language to his father at Gethsemane. He's on the ground, uh, you know, with his face between his knees, you know, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done, and he got silence. And then on the cross, Jesus Christ endured a drought of body and soul. He cries out from the cross, I thirst. They jammed a spear through his side and out came gushing amounts of water. And then he prayed further, my God, my God. This is the first time he'd ever addressed God, not as father, but as, as a less personal uh, name, God. Why have you forsaken me? Gets more silence. Jesus gets the deaf ear of God so that God will always hear the rest of his children for the rest of eternity. We have God's undivided attention. That's the invitation 
A God who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who has adopted us into his family, who is now resurrected and always lives, Jesus does now at the right hand of the Father, to intercede for us, to pray effective, righteous, perfect, aligned prayers that we might flourish as the children of God. And then he invites us to his table, which I'd like to lead us to now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, um, this table is a continuation of the words I just shared and the sermon I just preached and uh, the scripture we just meditated on. Because around every healthy, life-giving family table is a feast that will nourish the people around that table, will nourish the family members, not only with food and drink uh, to satisfy our hunger and our thirst, but also uh, with deep, rich, uh, never-to-leave, never-to-forsake relationship. Thank you, Father, that this table is, is just another reminder of our belonging, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that, Father, you will never give us bad gifts. You will only give us good gifts. And even the gifts that we don't understand, even the gifts that we, we, we don't immediately appreciate, Lord, give us the wisdom and the insight to pray back to you. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we trust, help us in our distrust. Lord, we, we want to align with you in every way. Help us where we are bent. Lord, thank you that this table is the place where we are nourished to those ends, where we are led to those ends, uh, that we might thrive as the beloved children of God. How much more Heavenly Father, will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you for the Holy Spirit? And so we ask for your Spirit now to fill this room, to flood our hearts, and to drive us in gratitude and joy uh, and hunger and thirst to your table. Because the defining feeling of faith is not strength, but dependent weakness. And so we come to you dependent, we come to you weak looking to you for strength. In Jesus' name, amen.